Last week, in the first half of Ephesians chapter 1, we surveyed this grand vista of our being chosen, chosen by the Father in Christ before time began, and being redeemed by the Son and having our sins forgiven, and our being sealed by the Spirit who is the guarantee, the deposit of our future inheritance. And that, we saw, is the inspired summary, the Trinitarian summary of the infinite treasure that you possess in Christ. And now, in our text this morning, the subsequent text in Ephesians 1, something interesting happens. Having extolled the electing, predestinating God, Paul now prays for the elect. Turns out that a high view of election propels him to pray. But that, of course, is not unique to this text. If you remember our Lord Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, there in that prayer, Jesus tells the Father, he's, he's praying to the Father, and He speaks of the disciples, and He says, Father, these disciples, they belong to You. Yours they were, and you have now given them to me. And at that point, what does Jesus do? He says to his Father, now I pray for them. Now this is, I suggest, quite foreign to our own logic, in our own natural instincts. For us, if election is true, then prayer becomes a problem. Why pray, we think, if God is the sovereign, predestinating God? The problem here is that our logic needs to be reshaped by the logic of Scripture, the logic of the Gospel, the strange calculus of revelation. Because on the glorious logic of divine revelation... It is precisely because the apostles are freely chosen by God that Jesus prays for them. Think about that. The, the very affirmation of election is what leads the Son of God Himself to pray for the elect. So election, far from leading to passivity, is to lead us to fervent prayer for the people of God. And that's just what the Apostle Paul is doing here in this text. It's as if he's saying to us that you must live. It's not enough for you to affirm Reformed theology. You must live in a vital way out of the riches you possess in Christ. He prays Paul does here because he wants us to dig out the treasures that are ours in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want all of that stuff from last week, if you recall, election, predestined unto adoption, redeemed, the forgiveness of sins, sealed with the Spirit. Paul does not think, nor does he want those things to remain irrelevant foggy abstractions that never touch down anywhere. He needs you to dig them out, 
to live the reality that, as we saw, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ, so he prays. And so at the outset of this text, we can see, I think, two errors that it helps us to avoid with respect to prayer. There are some of us fully affirming that we have all we need, that we have every blessing in Christ, fully robustly affirming election and our status in Christ, who are nonetheless slow and sluggish in prayer. And there are others who pray fervently, but if you listen to them, they often pray as if they've forgotten that every blessing is already theirs in Jesus Christ. And so this text points us in a better direction. Fervent prayer in the full knowledge of already possessing everything in Christ. And so we're going to make two points. We're really going to focus on the second point. The first point briefly will be thanksgiving. And the second point where we'll spend most of the time will be will be called knowledge. Thanksgiving and knowledge. So first, thanksgiving. In verse 15, the apostle begins by saying, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This thanksgiving for them is occasioned by two things. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. And we learn something here that I think is important. If we are to pray for one another, we're going to need to start by giving thanks to God for the people for whom we pray, for the graces which are evident in each other's lives. Gratitude frames prayer properly and sets our prayers in the right framework. And for my part, I will tell you that I do give thanks to God for you and for this congregation because I have seen, my family has seen and, and tasted in and through this congregation across decades, actually, but especially in the last week or so, um, your genuine love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love for us and for all the saints. It is something by which we've been heartened and for which we are grateful and which leads to petition. Thanksgiving leads to petition. And that leads us to the second point, uh, knowledge, knowledge. In verse 17 here, Paul asks, he asks the glorious Father to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. What is he getting at here? What, he, what the Apostle is saying is that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are not to have simply a bare knowledge of God, but a spirit, Paul says, of wisdom. And wisdom here means skill. Skill. Paul wants you to have skill and revelation which here means genuine insight into the mysteries of the gospel. And so the apostle wants the knowledge of God in us 
to be something lively, something we penetrate into, something we inhabit and indwell, something that's useful to us and to others. I may, have, I may recall that I told this story when I was here in September, but I, I, uh, when I was a young engineer at IBM, I had many encounters with a senior level engineer who was the most, turned out, he, he was the most gifted engineer I ever saw or worked with in the company. He happened to sit across the hall from me. And numerous times I'd be in my office, maybe with another person or two, and there'd be stuff all over the board. We'd be working on something complicated, struggling to find the right solution to solve some problem, and he would walk in. Now, he was not working on the stuff we were working on. We were young punk engineers. He was a big shot. But he'd walk in from across the hall and he'd say, what are you doing? And we'd, we'd try to explain him what we were doing. And he could almost instantaneously grasp the complexity of the thing. He could see into the true nature of the problem. He would often just simplify it and then often embarrassingly just provide a solution. Oh, why don't you just do this? Just do this. Cut this wire right here. And then he'd walk out and I'd sit there and think, I've been working on this for days. You know? And he'd be right. He'd be right 95% of the time. And I was aware back then that this wasn't just that he was smarter than me, which he surely was, or that he worked harder, which he surely did. But it was that he had a kind of technical wisdom. He had a spirit of insight. He saw things differently than everybody else around. Neither I nor anyone else saw into problems the way he did. And that was a gift of God's common grace. And it's that type of spirit that type of seeing that Paul wants you to possess in the knowledge of God. He wants you to be that kind of person in the Spirit. Right? He, he expands on what he's driving at here in verse 18 when he, he prays that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. Heart here does not stand for the emotional part of man over against the intellectual part of man. There's no head and heart dichotomy in Scripture. In Scripture, heart means the thinking, feeling, willing center of a human person. That's why some translations here say that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. And so Paul is praying that your whole inner being be lit up with the knowledge of God. He's praying that we develop a kind of grounded spiritual intuition, a way of seeing that can only come from the Spirit Himself. Back in uh, 2001, many of you remember our daughter Elizabeth, who sits here fine today, had a serious accident. And she was at Westchester Medical Center. She was in the intensive care unit. She's hooked up to these this array, bewildering array to me of gadgets and monitors and devices. And being an engineer, I would try and read them, figure out what these various fluctuations meant. And uh, I remember having a number of conversations with the pediatric surgeon who would patiently explain to me what each monitor was doing and what the acceptable range of readings were. 
But eventually it got to the point where I was asking him about the various combinations of monitors. What if this monitor goes here and that monitor goes here while that monitor's over there at this reading? And finally, he said to me, and I remember this distinctly, he said, look, don't try and read the monitors. <laughs> it's not about one or two monitors, he said. It's more of a gestalt. Of course, I had to look up what gestalt meant. It turns out a gestalt is a configuration or a pattern. It's a way of seeing the whole. So he, he was politely saying to me, look, you're not trained to have the kind of medical vision needed to read the monitors and draw a conclusion. You won't see the patterns properly. Right. So Paul, when he says he wants the eyes of your heart, your understanding to be enlightened, he's saying that by the illumination of the Spirit, he wants you to grasp the gestalt the unified whole, the patterns of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. He wants you to be lit up with the coherent wonder of the thing. And there are three particular things about the knowledge of God that the apostle wants us to see and grasp. These are three subpoints under this heading knowledge. The first one is our hope. In verse 18, after praying that the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, he prays that we would know the hope to which he has called us. Now, we may think we know what our hope is, but it should be clear here that Paul, again, is not speaking of a bare knowledge of the Christian hope. Our hope is that we die and go to heaven. Our hope is that Jesus returns and raises the dead and there's final judgment. He is speaking here of a kind of grasp of our hope that radically orients us toward the coming future kingdom of God. A future which is broken into time already in Jesus Christ. So this hope is a hope which infuses your life. Lights you up. Informs your personality. Your perspectives. Our priorities. To grasp this hope is to grasp the fleeting, partial, vaporizing nature of all of life short of this hope. Short of our inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. A sure sign that men and women have not grasped their Christian hope property is the fact that we constantly tend to invest a kind of ultimacy in things which are not ultimate. To know and to be intimate with this hope is to be oriented, turned, turned toward the end. It is remarkable how few Christians this can be said about. We are deeply through and through down to our bones creatures of the age. But it ought not to be this way. To know the hope to which we're called is to pray, to yearn, as the New Testament does, crying out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, for the kingdom to come in fullness. Right? To know this hope is to pray for the resurrection of the dead. Any day, no matter how wonderful, blessed, 
peaceful and serene the day is. Any day on which the resurrection of the dead does not occur is a less than fully good day. All days before that day fall short of what we want. You wake up in the morning, you think, what's the first thing I want today? This is not hyper-spiritual, pious nonsense. What we want, we want the resurrection of the dead. We want the vindication of the martyrs. What are they praying for in heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and 5? They are praying for the vindication of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood in the earth? When's the last time anybody prayed for those who have been slain for the cause of Christ throughout history to be raised and publicly vindicated before the whole world? We don't pray for this because we are not oriented toward the end. We don't pray for this because our knowledge of the hope to which God has called us is bare knowledge, formal knowledge, not living knowledge. We are to pray for the destruction of death. The reconciliation, as we saw last week, of all things in heaven and earth under the headship of Christ. And until these things shape and form and drive our prayers, we cannot be said to be a people who genuinely know the hope to which you have been called. The second thing we're to know is in the latter half of verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Note, this text is not about our inheritance, as grand as that is. It's about God's inheritance in the saints. Paul wants you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Because on that great day when our hope is revealed, the church is going to be revealed in all her splendor, in the new heavens and the new earth, as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. She is God's inheritance. And Paul says you should grasp the riches and the glory of this inheritance. In the church of Jesus Christ, God is laying up treasure for himself. There's a wonderful ancient hymn of the church called the Te Deum and in, in which it speaks of the church, saying that she includes the glorious company of the apostles, the goodly fellowship of the prophets, the noble army of martyrs. And that, of course, is just the beginning. And from that faithful army, from every tribe and tongue and race, the world has been given much art and architecture and music, and literature, hospitals, universities, schools. This is the glorious inheritance of God, and we're called to esteem the church rightly. And this can only be done when one's life is centered around her worship, her fellowship, and her mission. We live in the hope of seeing her splendor revealed in the coming city of God. And the third thing, Paul prays that we'll come to know comes into view in verse 19. We're to know his incomparably great power for us who believe the power which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Again, this is not an affirmation that Christ is raised. Paul is saying, you need to be enlightened. You need to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation to see the exalted Christ clearly. Calvin eloquently says about this text, we still lie under the power of death, but he raised from the dead by heavenly power has dominion of life. We struggle under the bondage of sin and surrounded by endless miseries, we fight a hard warfare. But he, sitting at the right hand of the Father, obtains the highest government in heaven and on earth, and he triumphs gloriously over the enemies whom he has subdued and vanquished. Now again, of course, all Christians affirm this, but that is not the apostle's concern here. He wants you to be enlightened to see it. It's so easy for us to forget that we need that power to live the Christian life. Because there's something about our culture, both, both American culture and the Christian subculture, that transmutes the Christian life into a kind of civic moralism. To something that might need an occasional assist from God, but it doesn't need the power that raised Christ from the dead. You could be a perfectly good Christian without that. But Paul doesn't think so. We cannot be Christians without the, without the same power, without the knowledge of the power, the seeing of the power, the intimate acquaintance with the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We cannot do what we're called to do out of our own resources. And the power we need has been exerted, the text says, exerted. It's been seen. It's been publicly manifested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is among the blessings which are ours in Christ. And we need to dig it out by prayer. The power we're to know has not only raised Christ, but starting in the middle of verse 20, we see also that Christ has ascended. <coughs> He's been raised <coughs> And he has ascended. He's been enthroned at the right hand of God above all principalities and power. Above all rule and authority. Visible or invisible. This age or the next. The resurrection gives us the glorious news that Christ lives and that forever. The ascension tells us Christ reigns and that forever. And the evil powers are not only defeated, they're subject to him. As verse 22 says, all things have been put under his feet. He's the new Adam with universal dominion. And this is why we can have confidence in prayer. The principalities, the powers, the dark forces which oppose us, which strangle nations, which hover in the air, those have been defeated and subjected to this Christ. And finally, we're told in the text that Christ possesses this cosmic headship over all on behalf of the church. We must see Christ in His current glory 
because he lives at the right hand of God for us. He is interceding for us, and his intercession is the ground of all of our ability to pray. And he shall bring us in triumph to the hope of our calling. Notice how this text ends in verse 23. The church over which Christ is the head is called his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Christ who fills the whole universe with his presence fills up the church with his power so that the church, get this, the church can be called the fullness of him who fills everything. Now that is an exalted title for the church. This is a wonderful prayer. But heard rightly, it should convict us of our lack of vision, of the self-centeredness, the low and paltry, crisis-driven nature of our own prayer lives. Where are the people who pray for the purposes and the kingdom of God in the earth? Do our prayers have any resemblance to this prayer? When's the last time you prayed for a brother or sister in Christ that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God? If, if we or our friends, our families, if we are not experiencing some urgent physical or financial need, if things are going pretty well, we're at a virtual loss as to what to pray for. But here, here we have a platform, right, from which we ought to launch out into praying for the saints, praying for one another with gratitude in an apostolic way, in a Christ-centered manner. And so I want to challenge all of us. Let us take this prayer in this coming week and use it as a template to pray for one another and for ourselves. Let us pray that we'd have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, and that being the case, we would know three things. The hope of our calling, the glory of the church, God's inheritance, and the great power which has been exerted in Jesus Christ, the exalted Lord, for our sake. Amen.